Hey everybody, welcome to Infectious, your guide to life during coronavirus. I'm your host Foz and today we're going to be talking to the director of the Yale Institute for Global Health. He's a vaccinologist and an infectious disease epidemiologist. So let's get right into it. So COVID-19 cases and deaths have been rising. And what specific factors are causing this? I know, you know, not wearing masks, more exposure. Is it simply just that there's more people or people actually not following precautions? So it's a bit of both. Uh, So what we have is that there is what we call uh, pandemic fatigue uh, in the sense that uh, people, you know, it was never consistent, but several people took precautions. And then, you know, it's been a while since this thing started. So people are easing up on their uh, precautions. On top of that, there are high-risk facilities or high-risk locations like bars and restaurants that are open where transmission happens more efficiently. So this virus, uh, you know, spreads through droplets, uh, fine droplets or sometimes aerosols, et cetera. And so when you have a lot of people in a confined environment, like a bar, like a restaurant, like an indoor space uh, that is small, confined, and that kind of stuff. So those were, in a lot of places, not, not shut down. Uh, that, but on top of you know that that is a huge factor. But on top of that, uh, we know that respiratory viruses spread more efficiently during winter months, both uh, due to the fact that people go indoors, but also changes in humidity uh, seem to play a role as well. So this is the time when the virus is at its most efficient state of transmission, plus a lot of folks didn't take precautions. So we are getting this, uh, you know, sharknado of a, of a peak in a sense that sharks and tornado in a sense that things com- multiple things combined in one. Okay. Um, and then moving on, can you discuss like what disparities we're seeing in COVID cases and deaths, you know, based on race, socioeconomic status, and even location? So we have, unfortunately, there are underlying disparities in health outcomes in the U.S. We have known about this for a while. There are differences in life expectancy uh, between, for example, African-Americans and uh, others, uh, especially Caucasian populations in the U.S. Uh, and these inequities has been exacerbated due to this virus. So we know that um, uh, depending on estimates, the mortality rate is over double uh, in African Americans compared to um, uh, whites in this country. Um, it is um, true for you know there's a high risk in Native American populations, uh, and and in certain at least for hospitalization in Hispanic populations, and so so these things has been exacerbated. And they are, you know, communities of color are disproportionately impacted by this virus. Okay, thank you. And now kind of focusing more on your kind of expertise with like vaccines and just dealing with implementing people on overhaul. Can you talk a little bit about like herd immunity and what this means with COVID? So herd immunity is a phenomenon where you know that, you know, when a a new virus comes in, uh, everyone is susceptible to that infection because nobody um, has any immunity. As uh, it goes through the community, there is certain people, there are certain people who get um, the infection and slowly, uh, at least theoretically, you get towards a a state where the virus stops spreading 
uh, you know, above a, if you reach a proportion of people above a certain threshold, the so-called herd immunity threshold, it doesn't find enough people in the community to infect. And so therefore, if you introduce that virus in that community, it will infect a few people, but it will not start an outbreak. So that's conceptually herd immunity threshold. There are two ways of getting this. One theoretically is through infection. So this, uh, you know, some people think um, uh, that you let this virus run rampant in the community and a bunch of people will get infected and finally the this uh, virus will stop. That's naive, dangerous, reckless. There are a few other words that shouldn't be repeated in polite company. Uh, but it is extremely unwise to follow that strategy because when you go through that strategy, a bunch of people die because a certain proportion of folks who get the infection actually do not survive. So you don't want to do that. There's another way of approaching herd immunity is through vaccination. When you vaccinate a bunch of people, um, they develop their immune response and they become protected against that virus. So that induces herd immunity in the, in the population. So, so that's the other way. That's the right way to get herd immunity because then people don't die in that process. And would you say that there's any way that we could reach herd immunity without a vaccine inside the United States or even within a certain population of people? We could, but then a bunch of people will die. At this point, we are nowhere close to a national level where of uh, number, you know, of uh, herd level protection that uh, that that the outbreaks will stop, uh, and so so therefore, uh, you know, you could theoretically get there, but it's extremely dangerous. Okay, and now moving on to your second point about the vaccine. So, like, there's been many introductions, and people have been talking about a lot of that vaccine, which you mm-hmm. know, Pfizer recently has like come pretty close to almost introducing it to the public. Um, yeah. and so many people are doubtful of this vaccine, and many say that they're not going to take it. Yeah. So, why do you believe the main reasons that people say that? It- so th- th- there has been, because it's a new vaccine and people have a perception that it was rushed. Uh, and these are uh, not the usual anti-vaccine people. These are people who want to have, uh, you know, who otherwise would take a vaccine. They're just a little bit of, uh, of lack of trust. Part of the reason is we, as a country, uh, our leaders, uh, public health and political leaders, haven't communicated as uh, vociferously and as consistently in terms of public health messaging. And so the way, so that's why they're concerned. What they need to know is that um, even though the process was step uh, sped up, no corners were cut. And so they sped up the process, for example, rather than sort of vaccinating a small number of people and waiting for a year uh, for disease to occur in the control group, uh, where, and, and, and look at the comparison of the control group versus the vaccine group, they enrolled a bunch of people uh, together. And so that's how they enhanced the probability of people getting infected uh, and, and or, or to enhance the probability of observing the impact in a short period of time. So that kind of stuff has been done and it will go through the FDA review process with an independent entity fairly rigorous review process. And people should have, the way these things look uh, is that people should have confidence uh, if it is uh, recommended, uh, if if it is authorized by FDA and recommended by CDC, people should vaccinate with confidence. Okay. Another thing many people have said is that this vaccine isn't going to be very effective. 
how effective do you actually think this vaccine is going to be in comparison to like a flu shot or a normal vaccine that people get? Well, so no, no. I think we now we have evidence uh, from three vaccines. Each one of them has vaccine effectiveness and efficacy higher than the flu shot. Two of them are one of the most effective vaccines we know of. Uh, so the two, the so-called mRNA vaccines, one by Pfizer, the other one by Moderna, are 95% approximately effective. So they are very effective. And we have very solid scientific evidence. The third one may have a slightly lower uh, effectiveness, uh, between 70 and 90% uh, approximately. Um, and so so they, it may, but even then, uh, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, of if a whole lot of people take, even if he had just, uh, you know, the choice for one of those vaccines, uh, where you know it was seventy percent efficacious, we would have, we should happily take this because if all of us take it, we can really make a dent in this pandemic. Fortunately, we have better options available. The two vaccines that have even higher efficacy. And now moving on a little bit from that. Even if people want to take the vaccine, many people have like brought the fact that there's going to be a lot of trouble distributing to this. They're like distributing mm -hmm. this vaccine. There may be a lack of resources. Can you talk about like if that's actually going to happen and what the plan is in terms of distributing this vaccine? So right now, so so I was involved with this National Academy of Medicine committee that was charged by CDC and NIH to actually come up with the overall allocation strategy. And intentionally, uh, so one of the first groups are healthcare providers who are at a really high risk. And so fortunately, hospitals, et cetera, have capacity for freezers and that kind of stuff to vaccinate their own population, uh, vaccinate the providers, and so on and so forth. So, uh, so that's a good thing. That's a great thing that is happening where you have uh, a group of people who um, will get vaccinated through the hospital. So, so that would be less of an issue. But beyond that, uh, there will be uh, some issues and distributions. The federal government is working with pharmacies and pharmacy networks. What they will do is they will vaccinate on premises, but also will hold, uh, will go out and have outreach. So there will be challenges. So, so I'm very concerned about the distribution issues, especially because they are uh, two of, uh, you know, one of the vaccines is kept at minus 70 or minus 80 uh, freezers, which is ultra cold chain. The other one is, uh, uh, kept at minus 20 uh, degrees. Um, and so that's also helpful. Minus 20 is not a big deal. Uh, that's your sort of, uh, those freezers are uh, fairly commonly available. But but even then, I think these this there will be challenges. There's no doubt that there will be challenges, but these are not unsurmountable challenges. And do you think based on, you know, as you talked about earlier, like different people in different like groups, socioeconomic groups, et cetera, and you know, race don't have access to the same amount of healthcare. Do you think that's going to play into the COVID vaccine distribution? Yes, uh, that's the concern. But again, this is addressable. So, in the National Academies of Medicine, National Academy of Medicine plan, we specifically recommended that state and local health departments use this in our, in addition to these prioritized groups. They use this uh, index uh, that they can calculate using census data called the Social Vulnerability Index uh, that looks at um, you know how socially vulnerable it is, how crowd, how you know what is crowding in that area, uh, how much crowding is there, how what is the proportion elderly, 
income, uh, minority status, proportion, uh, you know, minorities, um, transportation, and it creates an index. And, and we recommended that uh, health departments use that index to say, see where are these areas of vulnerability to make sure that they have access to vaccines. Specifically, they are not left behind. So that's one way of addressing it, and hopefully that will be addressed, but, but that remains a concern. Um, and now talking about when people actually do get vaccines, when people get vaccines, does that mean they need to stop wearing masks, social distancing, et cetera, or do they still need to continue safety precautions? So I, I would say that uh, as a society, once unless we reach high uh, vaccination rates, um, we should start, keep on wearing masks and taking precautions. There will be a time when we can ease uh, up on that. I am from the camp that thinks, uh, you know, uh, that is more optimistic than others. We have two at least highly efficacious vaccine. The third one is also uh, very good. Uh, and so, but what do you do in the interim? So in the interim, it's just polite uh, to wear the mask. Uh, first of all, you're not 100% protected. You're 95% protected. And unless everyone else is vaccinated, you, you know, you still have a reasonable chance of getting it, um, although a lot lower than before compared to if you were totally unprotected. But again, it's a social signal as well, masking that you are, you because they don't know that you are vaccinated. So if you break that social norm, a lot of, you know, it, it makes it okay for others not to wear a mask as well. So in the interim, even those who have the privilege of getting vaccinated early should wear it. And especially all the others should continue to wear it if they're not vaccinated, unless there are really high uh, rates of vaccination. And then after that, we can ease up on, on some of these requirements. Another thing that many people are claiming is that the U.S. has never reached high enough vaccination rates to stop the spread of a specific disease. Is that true? Actually, that's not true because, uh, you know, the U.S. has eliminated indigenous transmission of measles, polio, um, you know, smallpox has been eradicated from the world. So there are many other diseases where we have either eliminated that from, and the only cases are imported now, or uh, sort of drastically controlled it, like diphtheria, like tetanus, et cetera. There are, uh, you know, diseases like influenza, where we have a less than perfect vaccine and the coverage is not that high. Not everyone gets the vaccine, every takes the vaccine every year, where we have challenges. So there are challenges there, but it is possible. If you get a high enough coverage, you can sort of uh, substantially control this outbreak. Okay. And now moving to, you know, overall this pandemic in general, a lot of people have been kind of hoping for quote unquote end to the pandemic. What mm -hmm. do you think that that eventual end is going to look like? And what do you think, what do you think is going to continue after this quote unquote end? So it's not like flipping a switch. It's like um, uh, sort of turning up or down a dimmer. Uh, that's what it would look like. So it will be, uh, we will see changes in society as immunization coverage takes up, uh, picks up, uh, and it would, but it will be gra gradual. It won't be that fun one fine morning, everything is okay. Uh, but gradually things will start opening up and going back to normal. Yeah, people open up even now, but but there are consequences um, to that. Uh, but but you know we will go back to normalcy in a gradual but steady fashion if everything goes well with the vaccination program. Um, and now moving a little bit more to policy of a lot of different states right now. 
there's mm-hmm. sort of been two ways that states have been going. Some mm-hmm. have kind of just opened up completely. And yeah. now, as you're saying, in like New York and some other states, they're starting to close down things. Yeah. What do you think the benefits to each of those are? And which one do you think is more preferable? I think a Goldilocks approach, not too hot, not too cold, is more reasonable. Um, and, and so I think some of them opened up too early, too fast, too much. Uh, and, uh, and so, so again, going after places where transmission probabilities are much higher, they shouldn't have, unfortunately, shouldn't have never opened up indoor dining, or even if they opened up indoor dining, it should have been restricted to below 50, uh, 20% capacity. So very low levels of indoor dining, encourage outdoor dining. If the weather um, um, cools down, encourage um, uh, takeouts and provide uh, aid uh, and support uh, to these struggling restaurants. Look, uh, it is in all our interests that we have lower rates of disease. The hospitals are getting overwhelmed. The healthcare providers are really, really under a lot of stress, um, and, and so on and so forth. So, and, and 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 when hospitals get overwhelmed, it's not just that the care for COVID nineteen patient patients suffers uh, suffers. Uh, it's it's every, all other care in that hospital uh, gets impacted uh, because of the fact that hospitals are overwhelmed. So so based on that, I think uh, an approach that targets uh, large to medium-sized gatherings um, is, uh, especially in confined spaces, uh, is the strategy to go. Um, and, and so that's that should be the focus, at least at this point. Additionally, opening up schools has been an issue that's been debated among many different, um, yeah. different states, and they've had different kind of approaches to it. Um, what do you think kind of the best approach to opening up schools is? Yeah, so it's not an absolute thing that you you have to shut down schools or open up. So we did some research on this, and basically what matters the most is what is happening in the community. If you control the outbreak in the community, then you can safely open. uh, You don't have to bring it down to zero, but you can safely open schools. If you're not controlling the outbreak in the community, and, and I think we should have considered over the summer when rates were under control in several states to open up at that time, do an early semester, et cetera, so that as the weather cools down and as we are seeing these surges and schools have had to shut down, that wouldn't have happened. But again, we have a choice as a society. Do we want entertainment or we don't want education? Ideally, both are important. Both are important for the economy and the long-term prosperity of a society. But shutting down education has more long-term consequences. So provide aid to businesses that get impacted by these kinds of targeted orders, not a generalized shutdown, but targeted orders. And then you can open up schools safely. Okay. And and finally, kind of wrapping this up, if people are going to take away one major thing from this interview, what do you think the most important thing you want to stress to them is? I think it's that, that there is hope at the end of the, you know, there is hope um, on the other side, uh, we have vaccines coming uh, out uh, that will that are likely to be uh, very helpful in controlling this outbreak. We as a country, as a collection of communities, need to hunker down uh, voluntarily uh, for the next few months so that the next thing, Thanksgiving and the one after that and the one after that 
is as happy or even happier than before. Uh, we shouldn't uh, prioritize uh, the present over, uh, you know, uh, our future and the future of our, our, our fellow uh, community members and citizens, etc. So hunker down in the short term. It's not an infinite um, situation. Bring down the rates, uh, flatten the curve, uh, relieve the stress on the healthcare system so that it can take care of those who do get sick. Uh, and then, um, you know, in, in, within the next year or, you know, maybe a little after that, things will get back to normal. And so there is hope out there. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Omar. It's my pleasure. Thanks for doing this really nice interview. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Infectious, your guide to life during coronavirus.